Hey everyone, you're listening to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast with fiction author and national security expert Natasha Bajma. Join me as I interview subject matter experts about weapons of mass destruction and emerging technologies and authors who write about them. We'll discuss the ethical, societal, and technical aspects of science and technology so that you can tell great stories and still get the details right. Welcome to episode number 29 of the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. My name is Natasha Bajima, aka WMD Girl on Twitter. I'm a fiction author, national security expert, and your host for this podcast. If you're interested in science and technology and reading good fiction or want to write fiction based on technology, you're in the right place. Before we get started, just a few notes. The views expressed on this podcast are my own and do not reflect the official policy or position of the National Defense University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. This podcast is proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Check us out at authorsontheair.com. If you enjoy my podcast and want me to keep it up, I hope you'll become a patron for only a few dollars a month at Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash Natasha Bajma. And if you're interested, for only $3 a month, you can get access to my new podcast that's going to be coming out. It's called Project Gecko, after the second novel in the Laura Kingsley series. In each episode, I'll be giving a brief tech news intro and then reading two chapters from my book. Basically, this picks up where Bionic Bug Podcast left off. So if you haven't listened to that one yet, you can access all episodes on Patreon for free. So personal update, I apologize for being a week late with this episode. It's NaNoWriMo month, which means hundreds of thousands of writers around the world are attempting to write 50,000 words in a single month. That is crazy. So at the beginning of November, I started my new novel called Rescind Order, which is about nuclear weapons and artificial intelligence. Normally, I can write a daily quota of about 1,700 words a day, but not this book. It has been more challenging than I expected to translate the incredibly complex topics such as nuclear weapons, nuclear deterrence, and artificial intelligence into an accessible and entertaining story. Some of it is that I think everything is interesting and I worry that the audience won't find it interesting. So that's one of the things I've been struggling with. My headline for this week is Consumer DNA Testing May Be the Biggest Health Scam of the Decade by Ed Kara on Ziggy Moto, published on November 20. So if you've listened to me for a while, you know that this is a soapbox issue of mine. It's that time of year again, cue Christmas music, and millions of people will be buying consumer DNA kits to gain a better understanding of their ancestry and potential health issues. Please don't give away your genome to these companies. Um, I don't think you understand what you're giving away. Once you give away your genome, you're essentially giving away, well, your genome. It's your only genome. You're not getting another genome. This is not a credit card. But not only that, you're exposing your family and your relatives to incredible privacy risks. And I think people just don't understand that. And the reason is, is that consumer DNA companies are misleading you about what things they can determine from your precious DNA sample. So our genetics are only a piece of the puzzle that influences our health and who we are. Sometimes you can identify a specific gene mutation that causes disease. But most of the time, disease is caused by a complex mix of gene variants that predispose us to develop cancer, for example, or heart disease. And that risk is either amplified or muted by our environment. So it's not just your genetics. Regarding ancestry, at most you're gonna get a rough estimate of where your your ancestors come from. So if you like horoscopes, go ahead and do it. But 
Remember what you're sending in, the reason why they're buying your DNA from you is that they are building databases that they can sell to other people. You know how you get phone calls on your cell phone from, you know, companies? Well, that's because your your data has been sold. Now, you know, your cell phone, you can at least change, but you can't change your genome. Another issue is that law enforcement agencies are increasingly using gene genealogy databases to solve criminal cases. So how do they do this? They connect DNA that they find at a crime scene um, to uh, basically they look at these databases and they identify samples that are close. So they may identify family members of yours and then work backward to find out and identify their, their suspect. Um, so I handle all of these issues in my third novel, Genomic Data, which is launching this week on Amazon. It's on November 27 as both an ebook and paperback. And basically it's called Genomic Data, right? So it's all about this. Um, and if you want a fun story that deals with the implications and the dangers of that on those issues, um, please pick it up. Let's go to my interview. So today I'm talking with a science writer, Emily Lordich, and we are literally ripping stories from science news headlines. So if you're looking for story ideas and you enjoy story brainstorming, you don't want to miss this. And I'm including all of the articles that we're talking about in the show in the show notes on my website. So please look at that. Welcome to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. Today, I'm with Emily Lordich. She's the former news director for the American Institute of Physics. Uh, she spent over 18 years in that position. She's currently a freelance writer and focuses on the science found behind the scenes and within the storylines of TV shows and movies. She's captivated by the intersection of entertainment and science and writes her own blog called Real to Real, Stories Ripped from the Science Headlines to Inspire Screenwriters. Welcome to the show, Emily. Thank you so much for having me. So you've been a, screen, a science writer for over 20 years. You've dabbled, I think, in screenwriting and now interested in helping screenwriters create stories based on science. When did you get interested in the intersection of science and entertainment? So I've always been really interested in, in entertainment. And uh, back in 2009, I had an opportunity to participate in the American Film Institute's Catalyst program. It was basically a, a three-day crash course for scientists to learn about screenwriting. And what that did for me was teach me a lot of the basics of screenwriting and connected me with screenwriters. And I ended up becoming what was called a Sloan Foundation Science Advisor. So the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation gives scholarships to students participating in projects about science. And so in order to do that, the foundation wants the screenwriter to actually work with a scientist who can help lend accuracy and, and authenticity to these science characters and science themes in their stories. So I've had the chance to do that with a few students and it's been really, really fun and exciting. So you were working with, with actual screenwriters to help them get the science right in their stories. Yes. That's awesome. Um, so as you suggest by your blog, um, I get a lot of the ideas for my novels from the news headlines because I read science regularly and I see, ooh, that's going to go into a novel. And so I've asked you to come up with a list of your top 10 current news headlines for creating new stories based on science. And I thought what we would do, this is going to be a really fun episode, is go through them and kind of talk about what, what, what's the science here and what really cool things um, we could talk about in story. 
Uh, so the first one is researchers can now use artificial intelligence and a photo to make fake videos of anyone. Can you tell us what that's about? Yeah, this one was a little terrifying when I read that, that basically they were able to use technology and, and taking basically a photo to create and, and manipulate and create a video that looks like someone is perhaps doing something or, or you know, not doing something that they, that they should or shouldn't be doing. Um, I felt like, yeah, that was pretty terrifying because a lot of times when I've read things about fake video or fake images, there, there's some telltale clue in there that they're able to use to say, oh, clearly that's not me or that was taken at a different time or with, with an image, I mean, you don't even have to be in the location. You don't even have to be, let's say, at a place where maybe they, the video looks like you're there. They're able to, the technology is so good now that they're able to make it appear that, that you're there. So for me, that was pretty terrifying, but I, I could see how it could be used in a story. So tell us a little bit about how that's possible from a single photo. Did you uh, think about that or read about that? A little bit from the the articles, so so they were able to animate one and several photos of people by basically training the artificial intelligence system and kind of, I mean, in some ways, a similar idea like cutting the, the picture of the person's face and putting it on another body. Um, but I feel like this technology has gotten better in the fact that it, it looks more lifelike, it looks more natural. Uh, there, there aren't some of those places and, and cuts and things that normally you would see in a, in a video that would be faked or manipulated. So the way that uh, I understood also the article is that there's an underlying algorithm that has been trained on probably thousands and thousands of images. So that's how they can take only one image of then a new person and create a video. It's not that you can do all of that from one one uh, photo image. It's just that there's an algorithm back that backs up that process. Right. So this puts a whole new spin on the face app. I don't know if you caught that. Everybody yeah. on social media is taking a picture of themselves or taking an existing picture, putting it into face app, and then seeing how they age or how the algorithm tells them they will age. And I put on my Facebook um, status update, I said, does everyone know they're training an algorithm when they do that? <laughs> and that's essentially what we've been doing for years by posting pictures of ourselves, uh, selfies on Facebook and other social media platforms is those pictures are going into databases and those um, pictures are being used to train algorithms just like this one. But this is really scary, especially if you think about um, what we went through with the 2016 election cycle. Um, so what kind of stories do you think of, um, you know, based on this article? Well, uh, a lot of the things I think about are a video that says that, that you know, you did something or a lot of times they'll talk like some of the things with, um, kids stealing something, or I was thinking about something that would could make it look like you're straight A perfect student has stolen a car or cheated on a test or something like that where it would it would be something that that the kid would necessarily not have any way of being able to prove that they did or didn't and now here's this video that's gone viral that now the school's aware of and all of a sudden you know, I think you hit the nail on the head there it's going viral so 
Um, you know, I can see the police initially being confused by a fake video, but you could establish an alibi if you had actual evidence you weren't at this particular location. You were somewhere entirely in somewhere else. If you didn't have an alibi, you might be in trouble, but if you right. did have an alibi. But, you know, it's, it's that combination of the video plus the social media going viral, um, right? And that's when, um, you know, even though it's not, it's fake, it, it takes on a, a life of its own. Mm -hmm. It becomes really difficult then to go back and say you weren't that person. Right. Well, and I think too about stories where, you know, somebody can say anything online and people may or may not be like, well, now you have a video or now you have a picture and now it becomes a little bit harder to just deny, oh, no, I, I never said that or I never thought that I never did that. I think it, it kind of makes it a little more difficult in situations where someone's trying to prove their Innocent. Yeah, I mean, I think we're, you know, Photoshop has been around for a long time now. I think we're all kind of schooled in the, the potential for a photo, an image being Photoshopped. But I think this new video thing, deepfakes, is completely new. And I think there's something very um, believable about video imagery that is completely different. If, if somebody's moving entirely naturally, it's really difficult to refute that, that evidence. But I did have one particular case um, where I was in a uh, slip and fall accident and there was a video of it. And I, I had a case and the judge basically deemed the video not as evidence. So that was interesting. Uh, really? Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not a lawyer. I didn't understand why the video couldn't count as evidence of my fall, seeing as it very clearly captured me. But in this new world of deep fakes, I mean, you know, we're going to enter that new, that new area. So you could, you could think about legal dramas, you know, um, in the courtroom where, where a video that was the linchpin of a particular case gets called into question. It may or may not be a deep fake, but just calling into question could be an interesting story as well. Mm -hmm. All right, next one. So DNA technology can create unbelievable suspect sketches from crime scene samples. Tell us a little bit about this. So this one I thought was really interesting. So this was about uh, basically researchers taking DNA samples and being able to determine genetic features from the DNA sample. So basically being able to construct what could be a suspect sketch just based on DNA evidence. You don't have a witness. You don't have someone who sat down with a sketch artist and, and gave a picture where their eyes were close together, their nose was wide, their your lips were thin, none of that. This is all straight coming from the, the DNA evidence. So I thought, again, this was another story that could be really interesting and also really terrifying. I mean, can you be accused of something that you had nothing to do with just because your DNA was present? And now all of a sudden there's this suspect sketch that's going around that looks just like you and you were there, but you had nothing to do with the crime. So I'll add a little twist to that. Um, today, you can synthesize DNA. So if someone has your genome um, in a lab, they could actually create DNA material matter from your genome, which then could indicate your presence at a crime scene, which then could generate a composite sketch. Right. And you're completely innocent. So what's really interesting about this story, too, is that the science, do you, what, what's the science behind this? How do they do this? So the forensic scientist who explained it 
he talked about uh, certain genes determining how we look. So sequencing development from DNA samples can be used to predict someone's eye, hair, and skin color in a sketch. Facial features and face shape were also included, but I guess they were harder to predict. So this was basically using the DNA to predict. So based on your genes, like the likelihood of brown eyes or blue eyes. Right, so I think a couple of key things here is uh, that you said is first thing prediction. So prediction is not necessarily hard science, right? So they could predict wrong. The other thing too is that um, DNA, our, in our, our, our entire DNA is not fully expressed, right? So what is expressed is called the phenotype. So what they're essentially doing is they're predicting your phenotype based on your genetic information. But that's not, they can't, you know, I have green eyes or hazel eyes or whatever you want to call them. My mom has brown eyes. My dad has blue eyes. Um, I'm not sure, you know, they could have predicted any one of those things because, you right. know, I, I'm, I'm not sure exactly. And so critics kind of say this is an exact science. Um, so as you point out, it could, you know, your DNA could show up at a crime scene and now they have a composite sketch of you. Um, they put it out on the on the TV or, you know, person of interest and all you did was drop a hair. Right. <laughs> right. So this is all very, very interesting stuff. I think we're entering um, a whole new world. We're going to see a lot of stories about DNA um, as we kind of explore um, some of these new issues. So this is another related story. Engineers tap DNA to create lifelike machines. Tell us about this story. Yeah, so this one, I mean, because a lot of times I've seen research where it was machines based on you know, biology or it was based on something they found in nature that they kind of wanted to find a way to, to mimic. Um, so this basically was what, they're, what they're, they are, researchers are calling um, a new lifelike material powered by its own artificial metabolism. So they're making something that's essentially, the object isn't alive, but that it can kind of take care of itself. It can, it can metabolize, it can break, it can act like a living thing, but it's not alive. So this is interesting because it calls into question, I think what it means to be human and what it means to be machine in some ways, because um, our bodies are operate like machines. And as you just pointed out, if we can create lifelike machines that operate using biological material and, you know, you know, and live on their own, um, yeah. I don't know. I'm asking, what am I question right now? So there, there's some profound things. What, what are your ideas about story from this one? Yeah, so this one, yeah, it's it's tough. My my background is more earth science, so a lot of the biology and more biomedical and, and medical stories, I have to learn a lot more about the topic to, to be able to think about it some more. But um, but something like this, I mean, gosh, I mean, there's there's a lot of, of science fiction ideas as far as you know developing machines or even developing. Um, machines and things to help people that are more lifelike. So maybe there aren't issues with something being rejected uh, or something being able to be more compatible with the human body or being more compatible with people. You know, is it? Uh, oh, good? so you're talking yeah. about maybe the combination of human and machine. Yes. 
Well, some would say, I think Elon Musk would say, this is how we're going to fight the super machine or super intelligence. We need to, as humans, integrate um, different, you know, computer-like aspects into us and maybe also machine made out of biomaterial. Well, this is, this is definitely, it's interesting. Um, I, I guess the question that I have is why, why would they try to build machines out of biomaterial versus other materials? I mean, I guess you said compatibility with humans. Can you think of any other reasons why they would engage in this kind of research? I don't know. I think it, it's funny because I feel like in a lot of ways we are trying to go back to nature and go back to more natural things and, and things that are found naturally that we can um, create, recreate, recycle, and and kind of support and so, like sustainable technologies, I guess I would call it. Well, that's because nature is so powerful. So I'm thinking of a couple of examples that I've used in my novel. So my, my second novel is called Project Gecko. It was inspired by a, a project called the Gecko Project. <laughs> um, I think it was out of Berkeley, if I remember correctly, and they were looking to develop adhesives that were based on what happens within the gecko foot. So if you have ever held a gecko, which is really hard to do because they're so squirmy, and you look at their feet under a microscope, um, they have millions of nanoscale hairs. That's actually, and it's the friction caused by each one of those hairs against the surface that allows them to attach and detach so easily. So one of the challenges with adhesive is that you can attach, but how do you detach as agile as a gecko could? Um, and so they are developing these adhesives and they've succeeded to allow a person to scale a building using this, this new wow. adhesive. Now I thought, okay, so give me this adhesive and I try to scale a building. I'm like, climbing is hard. I tried rock climbing once and it's really hard and it doesn't matter whether you have adhesive or not, it's still going to be um, a physical activity. And so in my book, I combined, I had my characters wearing exoskeletons to give them that additional structure and strength combined with kind of the gecko adhesion on their hands and feet to allow them to scale a building like Tom Cruise did in Mission, Mission Impossible. So yeah, these biomimetic um, developments are, are really fascinating. And I think it just speaks to how powerful nature is. And so we're trying to imitate um, the capabilities that the nature has. Mm -hmm. So the next story is Disney Imagineering has created autonomous robot stunt doubles. Now, I read this article a couple times, and I'm still trying to understand why. So tell us about this, this story first. So when I first read it, I was thinking, because I've covered some of the technology that stunt people use in, in, to their work and in order to to stay safe and in order to kind of also do things that most people would think would be impossible. And so reading this, I was like, okay, so is this kind of a, a twist on the, the stunt person? Are we going to have robots that can do things that, that no matter what a human hasn't been able to do or, you know, something like that. So that now we have cool effects and, and not CGI, but we have an actual, robot that can actually do something that we can film. Um, initially, I was thinking about kind of the Hollywood aspect and kind of applications in, in movie and TV shows. also don't know if that would be cheaper to use something like that for special effects than, than maybe, you know, CGI. 
Um, but then when you think about it as a as kind of a story, it you know almost like the, the Terminator, kind of the idea of this robot that's invincible, that can can do anything that, that is difficult to be destroyed. Uh, and obviously with Disney Imagineers, I mean they they have their hands on the most incredible technologies and, and things that they can use and, and play with. So um, I don't know kind of what the future of this might be in in storytelling. Um, so I, I think there. I read the article and correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought that they created these autonomous robot stunt doubles to help their characters in the Disney parks because they, um, I read in the article, there was a disconnect between what the characters could do on film or TV and what the characters could do in the parks. Is that really why they're doing this to give their characters in the, in the parks in real life the abilities that they have um, on film? Um, yes, I, I think it was initially for Disney to use this and yeah, make that, that connection. Uh, but I was trying to think too also of kind of beyond Disney, what were some other potential uses and, and then also for stories. But yeah, I think you're right. I think um, and it's funny because I know Disney's so protective of their characters and kind of their trademarks and kind of um i know even for like the princesses you know they all have to kind of learn the same motions and movements and and so i think it would be interesting to see what is this going to do kind of i guess in the more maybe like the more superhero type veins mm -hmm. where you look going to be more physical more active so the the my writer brain goes to um a story that begins um in disney world um, and a couple of kids and the parents are enjoying the um, sights and they see their favorite superhero characters and there's this um, Iron Man. Is Iron Man Disney? Probably not. I have no idea. Uh, one of their characters that can do crazy things. Um, and then they have one of these robot stunt doubles and um, like you kind of intimated uh, with the Terminator, somehow the robot stunt double got artificial intelligence and things go wrong in Disney World Park, and that could be the start of a, a horror thriller type type yes. film, <laughs> techno <Yes>. thriller. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there's there's a, there's definitely a lot of a lot there, and it's so funny actually. All of the you know a lot of the robotics uh, developments have been predicted or you know foreseen and, and foreshadowed in many of the films that we've already seen like the terminator um irobot and other in other movies um all right switching topics here um what is a frostquake that is the article title so tell us what is a frostquake so uh, my background is in earth science and so i have a strong interest in natural disasters and earth science. And so I'm always on the hunt for a great story that I think would be great for a earth science related movie that's not gonna be completely bashed by the scientific community. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, and there's been a lot of great, you know, things in movies that have been great, but for the most part, I feel like the earth science movies are the ones that a lot of the scientists hate the most because they say, oh my gosh, all of this is completely unrealistic. So. Uh, Frostquakes are interesting in that it's it's basically based on because things are getting so cold, 
that is essentially creating these uh, these effects like an earthquake where right so it's it's causing the ground to essentially to, to freeze and then as it's kind of thawing it's 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 releasing the energy it's creating these like crackling noises and things and so people are thinking that it's an earthquake but it's really just because of these just frigid frigid cold temperatures like we had this past winter and we would have spans of three five seven days of really really cold weather and a clip and then it would warm up a little bit and as the ground's kind of rebounding it's kind of creating these noises and people are saying what is that you know, when I look outside, there's, there's no hole in the ground. There's no, my car is still there. Everything's fine. Um, well, I've got two story ideas already. So one, <laughs> um, up in the Arctic. So the Arctic's pretty hot right now. No pun intended. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and uh, everyone's talking about the Arctic and the fact that the, the ice is, is melting and that's opening up the, the you know, northern passage for, um, you know, extraction of oil and natural gas. Uh, transit and so Russia, China, the United States and other northern countries have their eye on the Arctic and so all of a sudden my, my mind went to you know some team at the Arctic doing some sort of scientific research and um, everything is you know going great and then um, maybe seven minutes into the movie there's this crack, the loud crack and like the sheet of ice like falls off, like chopping their research. Has that happened in a movie? It might have. I might, I might actually, maybe what I'm seeing has already happened. Um, so that was one. The other one was some sort of freak storm in uh, Niagara Falls, Canada, uh, freezes uh, parts of the Niagara Falls. I don't know how, I, how possible it is given the, the amount of water that pours over the Niagara Falls, but let's just say it's possible. Freak storm, climate change related. <laughs> and um, freezes the Niagara Falls and um, then, you know, again, loud crack. And then, you know, the sheets of ice come down and, oh yeah, it's a great disaster. I love, I love my, I love me a good disaster film, but you're saying that they often like, I'm thinking volcano, there were a couple movies about volcanoes, a couple, they usually get things wrong. Is that the, yeah. the problem? Yeah, well, well, and the other issue is always the, the timing, right? You need things to happen quickly. You, the, the film is only two hours long. And so, you know, any kind of climate change, it, it, it can't move at a glacial pace. Um, <laughs> that is true. So I feel like, I mean, that's some of the other problem with a lot of the earth science stuff, unless you have you know, an earthquake, a flood, is something that, that happens quickly, you know, you got to speed it up for story's sake. And so I feel like that's sometimes part of the problem where the, the screenwriters are forced in a position where they have to kind of take liberties and, and make decisions that, that someone who's checking for accuracy says, oh, you know, that would never happen. The same problems come up when you're trying to tell a story about a disease outbreak, whether it's naturally um, occurring or um, caused by a biological terrorist attack. Um, disease does not spread as quickly as we would like it for movie purposes. And so a movie that I love to show in one of my classes, Contagion, they actually do a really good job, but they had to speed things up beyond <laughs> any realistic scenario um, to kind of show the story that they wanted to tell. So that's, I think, the thing, the struggle, right? Um, when you're telling mm -hmm. um, stories based on science and you have 90 minutes to 120 minutes to tell your story. 
and it can't all be about science. It has to be mostly about the characters. And so that's, right. that's the challenge. So similar topic, uh, next uh, headline is earthquake aftershocks could go on for years from the 7.1 that shook Southern California, Dr. Lucy Jones says. Mm -hmm. I thought this one was interesting because I was trying to think about what a world would be like with constant aftershocks. What would your daily routine be like if you're you're you know bracing your your dishes and your cupboards and your and the things in your home? What's driving to work like? What's spending the afternoon with your kids at the park like? What and you, you know, these aren't predicted. They they don't come with any kind of regularly frequency. It's not like a a train coming every day at four fifteen. You you have no idea. So how do you Protect yourself, prepare yourself, protect your family. Um, oh, here's a good one. So let's say you uh, are producing a film in Hollywood on the sets there, and uh, every 30 minutes or so, there's another shake. Right, <laughs> right, right. How do you get anything you can use? Right. I mean, would, would people stay in Southern California? What would be interesting is if you kind of started the story after maybe several months of this happening, right? And so maybe people are leaving Southern California. Maybe there's some sort of exodus, you know. Um, so one, one thing when I, when I read this article, I thought about is they always talk about the big one. Can you tell us a little bit about the so-called big earthquake? Is there a big earthquake coming or is it just going to be these, these little aftershocks? It's... I think, I mean, when they look statistically at the kind of chances, I think there's always this threat of the, you know, this big one, this one where there's, so much kind of built up as far as as pressure and and you know um, that they're worried that this is going to be more dramatic. It's going to be strong and it's going to you know last a long time. And and unfortunately, you know, we're we're still the researchers are still learning. They're still learning how to predict and what signals mean what and how to do this. So I, I just think it's really difficult to be able to say when it's going to happen and and how big it's going to be and when who's going to be affected and researchers are constantly trying to kind of improve that and try to get better at that but i think having this kind of information like the fact that these aftershocks can, can you know occurred right after and can could keep occurring i think are at least helpful for the public to be able to understand that that the, the stuff that you know nature is unpredictable and that it's it's really difficult to be able to say and so we have to figure out how to in some ways kind of live with this and and how are we going to prepare and how are we going to plan ahead as much as we can and still give room for nature to do what it's going to do? Um, it would be so interesting. I just thought about uh, a progression of my story. So we're in Southern California. This has been going on for months, regular aftershocks, very disruptive of normal life. So some people are talking about, you know, the end of certain industries in California. So you have news kind of casters come on and you kind of hear that um, voiced over. And so I'd imagine, and well, you studied geography. I'm just going to, I don't study geography. I'm just going to propose something um, since I'm a writer and I have an imagination. Um, I, my, my general understanding is that the shakes come from, you know, the, the shifting of the plates and release of energy. Is that correct? Yes. So my layman's assumption is then if the plates are constantly shifting in Southern California and there's energy released, is there energy buildup somewhere else? So wouldn't it be cool if, you know, you had this thing, you know, your story started out in LA 
And um, basically, there's all this tension build up. I don't know, Chicago, and Chicago basically collapses into itself in a big crack. I don't know. I'm just throwing things out there. I probably see. You think I'm doing. I'm doing what, what they get. What they get wrong, but no. But I mean, I think. I mean, I think that's. I think that's the the trick, though. I think is to finding those tidbits of of truth and accuracy and kind of how things work and saying, okay, how else can we apply this that maybe we've never seen before? Or something that could be really interesting or could be, you know, something that uh, something we never thought about. So no, I think that's. I think that's a great way to kind of explore it. Um, I mean, I'm originally from Pennsylvania. We never had much earthquake activity. And then all of a sudden there was the, these you know, earthquakes happening in the, in the DC area a few years ago. And, and it was, for me, it was so interesting because I thought, well, we've never had anything like this you know, growing up. And then all of a sudden in the span of a couple of years, there were, there were two earthquakes in this, you know, in the same kind of region. Um, I have a new idea. So, okay, it starts out in LA with all of these aftershocks. Life is being disrupted. The movie people are going, I don't know if we can do this anymore. Newscasters are saying, so there's all this tension build up. Let's pick on Pennsylvania. I like that better. Pennsylvania okay. near a nuclear reactor. There, you go. there we go. And the uh, tension buildup sets off an earthquake in Pennsylvania like they've never seen before. And the nuclear reactor, of course, um, well, it, let's just say it melts down. I don't know how it melts down, but this is when I would start asking scientists. So writers, this is what you do. You come up with a crazy story, and then you got to go find <laughs> a bunch of scientists, and you got to ask them the crazy question, could this happen? And when they say, well, yeah, it could happen, it doesn't have to be 99% certain that it could happen, right. just the, the potential for it happening, and that, that's kind of the basis for a story. Right. All right. Next headline. Research reveals how certain sounds make some people dizzy. Yeah, see, I, I, I love stories like this, uh, where it's something that maybe you never thought about or you never experienced. But I think, you know, there, there was at one point talk about things like, you know, kind of like acoustical weapons. And, you know, was there some sound or some frequency that could be used to kind of you know make things difficult for people or you know something else that that i was thinking about too was even the idea of like ages like maybe you know uh, kids younger than teenagers maybe they could hear certain frequencies better than adults or their you know their grandparents and so now all of a sudden there's something affecting young people that the parents don't understand because they can't hear it um so you mentioned also, acoustic weapons. So there's, um, I don't know, do you remember uh, the situation in Cuba? Um, yes. The, was, yeah. the diplomats experienced um, similar symptoms, but there was no uh, obvious um, cause for them. And um, it could have been an acoustic weapon. Um, so that's basically sending certain frequencies. And then they basically cause people to be dizzy, experience headaches, other symptoms. Um, yeah, it's scary. That's really scary because it's invisible, right? You could just be, um, going about your day. You could be in your car, for example, and someone points an acoustic weapon at you and you lose all sense of your balance where you are. You're not able to see. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, I'm thinking about an amplified acoustic weapon that is used by, a terrorist group 
to basically send a city, we'll pick on out Los Angeles, into chaos. Well, I mean, th even, even thinking about a place like the National Mall, where there would be a lot of people in one location, or at a stadium, at a sporting event. Yeah, we could pick on Washington, too. Um, I, I was thinking about a city that would pretty easily disrupt into, you know, more chaos relative to the, the incidents, such that there's just panic and, um, you know, societal breakdown. So, yeah, there's a lot of potential options there. But it, it kind of is, it's, it's a lot like acoustic weapons are a lot like bioweapons or a lot like um, radiation. They're invisible and you don't know um, you, you can't see them, you don't understand the effects, um, it can be very, very, very scary. So a related story, but also interesting, um, a head full of fluid and burning eyes, NASA astronaut talks about his year living in space. Yeah, so I mean, growing up, I, I loved the space program and wanted to be an astronaut, and I thought everything about this was cool, and then you think about, well, there's Definitely some things about being an astronaut that would not be so cool. I mean, personally, I suffer a lot of allergies, so I could imagine my sinuses would probably be miserable uh, up in space because nothing would drain and nothing would kind of go where it was supposed to. Um, and so, yeah, this article I thought was kind of interesting in that it's kind of those things that you don't think about in a, in a situation where you don't have gravity. You know, it's not just, oh, I'm going to have a hard time pulling up my your pants are keeping my, my glasses on. It's, you know, it's, it's your, the way your body functions. It's the way you're, you know, you go to the bathroom or you try to drink water. So um, I thought that would, could be another thing that, that I haven't really seen in any kind of like astronaut or space movies. I mean, you've seen, you know, the, the spacewalk and you've seen you know, them deal with issues with physics and, and being tethered to the, to the spaceship. But, I don't think I've seen a lot of the biological kind of type thing. So I was trying to think of a way that maybe that could be woven into a story. You know, maybe there's some kind of a, a crisis situation that happens or, or the astronaut gets sick. And so now all of a sudden you have this astronaut in crisis and the other members that are, that are there trying to help him or her. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great one. I was just thinking about how, let's say that space travel, you're telling a story when space travel is much more prevalent and um, you've been in space for a while, but you know things, you're capable, you're a NASA, NASA astronaut, you're, you're capable of things that others aren't, and there's a crisis in space at the, the moon base. There's a crisis on the moon base, and um, <laughs> because you've spent all this time um, in space this last year, and you're still kind of like recovering from microgravity, there's a conflict about whether or not you can be sent um, into space, but the crisis deteriorates at the moon base, and therefore you have to go into space and kind of make the sacrifice that could potentially harm the health of the character. And that could be a really um, powerful story, um, mm -hmm. if, you know, especially if the character doesn't make it back, but, you know, um, solves the crisis and saves the day from whatever. I'm not sure what it is, mm -hmm. but there's a crisis on moon base, folks. Um, so that's a potential. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the unsexy part, of course, of being in space. And I think um, uh, I think about The Martian uh, by Andy Weir uh, made into a film. Mm -hmm. I think more um, more writers are starting to deal with the hard science of what, what it's like in space. And I'm, I just read a book by um, Daniel Suarez um, called Delta Five. I think it was Delta Five. Um, 
and it was about the space race. And um, there were a lot of, a lot of things he had to think about um, to operate in space in, in microgravity situations. Not everything works, like including your, with your body. So fascinating. All right, we're going to end on a less serious note um, with two uh, remaining headlines. So this one is, strange blue lights seen over Arctic Circle were not aliens, says NASA. Do we believe them? <laughs> well, but I think, you know, this definitely feeds into all the time. You know, that strange light, that blue thing, that weird color, that, you know, people are always quick to say, well, it's not a plane. So, you know, it's not a helicopter. It's nothing I've ever seen before. What is it? Um, and so I think, you know, again, it, I think it's cool that there's still things out there that we're still learning and we're still trying to understand. So this was actually a, a rocket, and I'm trying to remember what they were studying. Um, but it was, you know, but the, like the point was to create these trails and leave these these kind of indicators in the sky. And so that was part of what people were seeing was this trail and the the kind of things that were helping the scientists that were actually like, oh wait, that's you know that's something that I've never seen before. Um, the lights look pretty strange in the pictures. However, I don't know if I would have said they were aliens. Yes, I would have said, hey, <laughs> look at those strange lights in the sky. <laughs> Fireworks. There's something else that I, I rarely make the leap to aliens, but that's just me. Um, I don't know if you heard about the um, the Facebook thing um, that I yes. guess was going to storm Area 51. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I, I. I. Sorry. I just don't compute on those things. Although you know, s stories about aliens make for good fun. Um, I just. Uh, yeah. Yeah, well, I also think, too, it, it, those could be the kind of things that could be um, almost like the idea of October Sky, you know, the kids that are inspired by seeing something in the sky that makes them want to learn more, and you know, maybe then they become rocket designers, maybe they become engineers, maybe they become meteorologists, somebody who's looking at, you know, why were those things able to stay in the sky as long as they did, so I think it could be a, a potential starting off point for a story maybe that's not about aliens, but maybe something that's that's inspiring. Or it could be like, uh, you know, starts out a small town, so then people think it's aliens, but you have that really but, super bright kid who decides to go investigate and then ends up talking to the scientists and figuring out, yeah, and then having a career in science. Um, yeah, it's uh, lots of stories, interesting stories could be told. All right, we are closing on the most serious headline of all. Um, I do not want to undersell this one. Six people swallowed Legos and poured through their own poo for science. Why? Tell us. Yeah, I don't, I don't quite know about the volunteers for this one. They were, but, uh, but I mean, I, I just, I thought it was such an interesting thing is that how many times growing up, you know, my family was concerned, oh, the neighbor kid, the cousin, the somebody swallowed something and are they going to be okay? Um, I also was thinking about like, it could be just this weird, it's the, the new guy in his new mafia ring and he's looking for the you know, new way to hide information. So they, they hide it in the Lego head. I don't know. Like I was trying to think of like, what were some of the weirdest things? You could hide diamonds in the Lego heads. Exactly. You know, like the, the, the drug mule, you know, is it just some kind of weird vessel for something that... It would have to be small, I think, but um, yeah, that's, I, I recently watched an episode of The Closer um, with uh, Kira Sedgwick, I love that show, mm -hmm. 
um, and the dog uh, ate a glove with prints on it uh, from the crime scene. And so they had to wait for the dog to pass the glove. So it was a big part of the, the, the story plot. So it could be a complication as well. So in addition mm -hmm. to being something nefarious where the bad guys are hiding things in unmentionables, um, it could also uh, add to the complication of the story. Uh, like the mm -hmm. kids swallowing the key to something that's mm -hmm. absolutely important uh, to, I don't know, save the day or something. Um, right. Nothing, nothing like waiting for things to pass, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been uh, really fun. I hope uh, the listeners have had fun uh, thinking about these headlines and thinking about potential stories. I think uh, it's all good food for thought here. Um, where can listeners find more about you on Twitter and your website? So my Twitter is at Emily Lordich. Uh, so it's E-M-I-L-I-E. L-O-R-D-I-T-C-H and the blog is real R-E-A-L the number two R-E-E-L dot blog and you can find me on either place. That is such a cool name. Well thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review. You can also support my time in producing the show with Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Natasha Bajma. For more information about the podcast, go to www.authorsofmassdestruction.com. See you next week.